Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better for balancing running with the rest of our lives. A really exciting show today with Megan Connolly Morant. She is a professional sports media member who's currently working for the WWE. And I just couldn't wait to talk to her. She was a former college runner who has run a ton of marathons and run them incredibly well, even with a very demanding media job, which is really exciting for me as someone who works in the media. And recently, she ran the New York City Marathon shortly after donating a kidney. And this was an incredible story. The kidney part of the story kind of comes near the end, around you know, like the 55-minute mark or so. But all the stuff leading up to it is so valuable. I love this conversation so much. And I would have kept talking to Megan. Frankly, I actually had to go pick up my son at school, which is what uh, brought this podcast to a close. We talked for almost 75 minutes, and we could have gone for three hours. This was absolutely fantastic. I can't, to get, can't wait, I should say. Can't wait to get Megan back on the podcast. Maybe next year, that would be a great time. That's for sure. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor today, Oladant. I love these headphones. The OWS2 headphones are amazing. I've used bone conduction headphones for a long time, but I have leveled up. These open ear design headphones allow me to hear all the surroundings while also giving me high-end quality sound. This is a complete game changer. It is so much better than what I used to use, and it has elite battery life to boot. You are you cannot go wrong with the Oladance OWS2 headphones. They are absolutely fantastic. Not only that, if you go to oladance.com forward slash rambling, Oladance is O-L-A-D-A-N-C-E, oladance.com forward slash rambling, and use code rambling, you'll save 20% on your order. Now, let's get into my conversation with Megan. All right, Megan, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me on, Matt. Um, it's an honor. I was so excited to get the message from you inviting me on. So thank you for having me. I, I am so excited. <laughs> this is this is a big deal for me, having you on. You're someone who works in the industry, in media, and this is so much fun to get. A media personality who's also a die-hard runner. Like, we'll get into it. Like, this is, as much as you are in the media game and, and, and truly someone who a lot of people know, the running side is is remarkable. And I love the fact that, like, again, you use, again, you work for WWE right now, and people don't know that's that's the World Wrestling, um, it used to be World Wrestling Federation. When I was growing up, it was WWF, and then, you know, obviously converted to WWE later. And that is, you know, that is your business side, but I love that you still intersperse the running on the Instagram. Like, even though it's like a professional Instagram, you still, you still showcase the running on there and I'm all about it. So first of all, congratulations on running 302 at New York. Like that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been really fun. And like, you know, I don't get to talk about running a lot. So this is awesome that I get to be here on the rambling runner podcast and um, chat about one of my passions and yeah, you know, I've kind of, uh, I keep my social media pretty professional, but um, I the word and describes me a lot. Like I am a, I am a broadcaster and a runner and a this and a that. I feel like I can't put myself into one box. So there's a little sprinkles of everything there. And I just kind of started sharing um, more running on my page and it's really connected me with a whole different group of people. And that's been really fun for me. And I've joined different running groups as I've moved around. And so um, 
sharing running on social has really helped connect me. But yeah, New York, it was it was a great time. We got really good weather. And honestly, going into the race, I had no idea what to expect. So 302, I was I was pretty happy with. That is remarkable for sure. And as someone who works in sports media, what's it like for you sharing your own athletic journey with people who, again, who are who are sports fans? Like at first, were you worried about it? Like kind of like combining the two? And what was the like, how did people take to like Megan as athlete, not simply Megan as someone talking about athletics? Well, I think when I first told people I was a marathon runner, a lot of people didn't realize that this was more than just a hobby. I think a lot of people saw it as like, oh, she's a jogger. Oh, you know, charity bib, that type of thing. And then when the results came out, a lot of my coworkers were like, oh my God, Megan, you're really good at this. And I was like, well, I've, I've been doing it for a really long time. And my relationship with running has sort of evolved as my life has evolved. And it's definitely gone in cycles and it's always just been a part of me. Um, and I've been serious about it. I've been less serious about it. Um, I've, you know, gone through phases where I couldn't even look at a watch or step on a track. And then I'm kind of at where I am now, which is, which is very much balanced. Um, but a lot of my coworkers, like WWE superstars were like, I had no idea that you were a marathon runner, but before I worked for WWE, I, um, was working for the Patriots and, I travel a lot with work. Um, I'm now in the studio for WWE, but that only happened like a couple months ago and before I was on the road for 52 weeks a year. So it was on the road. A lot of my coworkers knew about my running because they'd see me in the lobby getting back for a run or going out for a run, or they'd see me on the treadmill for a really, really, really long time at the gym. And then a lot of people would be like, wait, you're not just jogging on the treadmill, like you're running on the treadmill. So this cat was kind of out of the bag just because my life was on the road. Um, but after I broke three hours at Boston, I put up a post and some of my colleagues at WWE reached out and were like, wow, it's really inspiring that, you know, you have the same schedule as us on the road, but like you're still chasing your goals in your personal life. And that meant a lot to me because I don't do it for anybody except myself, but um, it's not always easy. So getting that comment from people felt really good. Oh, yeah. Running when you're on the road it must just be so tough. Again, I have had a limited experience with that. I used to be on the road for like half the year in, mm -hmm. in various jobs. And even then, it's so easy to just default to like, OK, it's the end of the day or it's being the day like I just need to relax. Like this is I have a hectic work schedule. Traveling can be disorienting. You're in a different city all the time. And, and I'm not comparing my travel to yours. Yours was far more extensive. But even in my limited travel. I experienced those feelings. So I can only imagine what it was like for you. And again, running for, you know, two or three hours on a treadmill, even if you're like, you know, the most the fittest person in the world, like that could be a grind. Oh, so yeah. And just finding places to run. You never know where the hotel is going to be and if it's going to be in a good area and if there's going to be running spots. I always use that app, All Trails, to find, you know, is there something around me? Is there a place around me where I can just go to run, but I really had to adopt the mindset of something is better than nothing is what I would tell myself every week that I was traveling because I'd be training for these marathons and you'd have specific runs that you needed to get in, right? It'd be like, oh, today I got to do this eight mile workout or I got to do this tempo runner or maybe I even just have an easy run on this day. And you're like, oh, I'm landing at, you know, I'm landing at noon today. It should be no problem. I have plenty of time to get the run in. 
but then you'd get delayed, then you'd get canceled, then you'd end up on some other flight. And, you know, you end up getting in at eight o'clock at night and you're just exhausted. And I would just tell myself, you know what, Megan, if three miles is all you have today, we'll take that over nothing. If one mile is all you have today, we'll take that over nothing. So I really just had to adapt to the fact that training wasn't going to be perfect. And, um, that was sort of like, I ran in college and, um, you know, I was competitive, I was training and then I got out of college and I still love to run. I was just, I was done with the watch. I was done with stepping on the track. I was done with all that stuff. And, and I kind of found running again in a competitive way just a few years ago. Um, but I didn't want it to be something that stressed me out. I wanted it to be something that brought me joy. So adapting that something is better than nothing aspect, even now that I'm not traveling as much, it's still sort of my mantra. It's still sort of my motto because at the end of the day, like I am doing this for fun. Right, for sure. It's funny how, like, you talked before about how they would see you on the treadmill and be like, "Oh, she's not just jogging. She's like, she's she's really speedy." But like, they might not know. Like, you're you. Not only did you run in college, you ran in the Big Ten. I mean, you went to Northwestern. Like, this was it, the this was running at the highest level in college. So you know, for you, it might have been like, okay, like this pace is like maybe two minutes per mile slower than what I used to run before. But at the same time, again, that was elite college running. And here you are, like, again, making it work and fitting it in, which is something that I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast can certainly relate to dedicated amateur runners who are just trying to, like, become their best selves while balancing so many things in their life, which is obviously exactly what you're doing. Going back to pre-Northwestern days, where did running fit into your life? say back in high school when you were say maybe making your college decision when you were starting to really kind of extrapolate different running goals and what running meant to you early in life well running was my whole life for a really long time i started running when i was eight years old and i fell in love with it now i played all kinds of sports i played volleyball softball basketball i was an Irish step dancer and then i joined the cross-country team and I don't know what it was, but I just loved it. I loved being a part of that team. I loved chasing after time goals. I mean, when I started running, I had like a pair of Skechers, you know, it's just like the school tennis shoes that my parents got me. And I, you know, they didn't really realize how serious I was about it. And it was, I was doing a lot of sports too. So it'd be like get in the car from cross country practice and go to Irish dance and then go to basketball. So like, we were running around a lot. And then... I think it was in sixth grade. My mom went to parent-teacher conferences and she came home and she was like, so I talked to Mrs. Knight at parent-teacher conferences and I heard that you didn't go to basketball tryouts. Why didn't you go to basketball tryouts? And I was like, well, mom, I really like cross country and I just want to put my focus into running. So I know there's a lot of literature out about there about like spe specializing in sports and and I played a lot of sports, but I had kind of fell to that decision on my own as a sixth grader that, you know, I didn't I didn't want to play basketball. I just I really wanted to shift my attention to running. So that's kind of when my parents were like, OK, you know, this is her thing. She really wants to do it. We have to support her. And I was all in. I remember I got my first pair of cross country spikes and um I remember like going on the internet and looking at all the results and, and seeing how fast I could get and like really reading about running. And um, I mean, I had to have 
really good middle school career. I know that sounds weird to say, but like as a middle schooler, I'd run like a five sixteen mile, and and really that's from incredibly that point, fast. Yeah, wow. from like, that point, I was just like hooked. Like I wanted to do this. I was looking at the high school school records, and I was like, how can I break those? How can I? How can I run in college? I was like completely obsessed. You go back to any of my notebooks from middle school, junior high, or high school, and you will see time goals scribbled all over. I like was super superstitious. I had like a pre-Reese meal that I absolutely had to have. I had lucky socks that I couldn't wash. Like this was my identity. This was all of me. Running was everything. And I had a pretty impressive high school career and it led to getting recruited, going on, you know, official visits, um, having coaches come to our house. And I ultimately decided to run at Northwestern. And my college running experience was not what I hoped it to be, hoped that it would be. And um, can, I, pa- can I pause you right there? Yeah, can I pause you right course. there before we get into college? So you sound like you were extremely focused very mm-hmm. early on. Was that something that was kind of ubiquitous in many areas of your life? Or was this really like when it came to running, you were this way, maybe a little bit more laissez-faire in other, in other aspects of your life? Well, I've always been really social. So <laughs> I talk a lot. And so that part of life, you know, wasn't that much of an issue for me. And then school kind of came naturally to me. Um you know, I, my sister is like crazy smart and her test scores are like off the charts ridiculous. Mommy weren't like that, but I can relate to that experience, (laughs) (laughs) but I was a good student. And, um, you know, my parents made it very clear from the beginning, like you don't do well in school, you don't get to run. So, um, that was the expectation. That was the standard, but I've always been somebody that I'm either in or I'm out. And so when I'm in, I'm all in. And when I'm out, I'm not involved. Um, and that's kind of how I've been with really everything in my life. I'm, I'm either in or I'm out. Got it. Well, I'm glad you're here talking about it because this, <laughs> this is great news. All right. So when it came to those formative years, did you have anybody that you looked up to in the running space, whether that was locally, like someone at your school or someone in your community or more globally, like, hey, this you know famous runner that you know was something you looked up to and were trying to emulate. Um, I went to this running camp while I was in high school. It was called Sub Five Running Camp. It was for high schoolers, and it was in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois, um, and every summer there was a awesome group of runners, and we'd all go to it. And honestly, we were some of each other's biggest competitors, right? So we'd spend the summer. I remember like easy runs. It was like. You know, you're supposed to go easy. And at these camp easy runs, we were kicking each other's butts. Oh, my gosh. It was like a state meet preview in July. Uh, like, this is like the Prefontaine movies when he's at Oregon. And he's like, no racing at, tra- no racing at practice, right? Just, yeah. Just like getting, so, getting like screamed at by Bill Bowerman. <laughs> yeah, that's how we were. But um, I'm honestly still really good friends with some of those girls to this day. And it was... You know, we went through some stuff together. We we watched each other go through struggles. We watched each other celebrate big high highs and go through really, really low lows. And it's it's been really neat now to see each other transition into life, right? And see who everybody becomes. I have friends that, you know, are mothers and are um, killing it in their careers and are doing all sorts of different things. So I always had that space in the running community. 
Um, I remember there was a girl who went to my high school. Her name was Liz Phillips, and she had set all of the records, and she was valedictorian, and and she was really just an exceptional human being. And I looked up to her so much and wanted to emulate my success after her success. And um, she's gone on to be a doctor and, and very accomplished. I, I don't know if she's still running much anymore, but when I was in high school, she was my idol. She was my role model. And then I remember, you know, like watching um, high school Foot Locker, like streaming it on my computer. Um, I trained with a guy named Lucas Versbikis for a while. He was an amazing high school athlete and his dad coached me in high school for a little bit as well. Um, so my high school running was pretty intense. I think a lot more intense than most high school athletes have it. But again, like I said, this was my life. Like this defined me. All right. So let's talk about your goals or hopes for the future before entering college. All right. Mm -hmm. So say summer, say if you were to like go back in time, summer before your freshman year of college, what were your visions for like what was possible in running and some of the goals that you'd set forward, not only short term, like freshman, sophomore year in the Big Ten, but maybe even all right, what could this be a springboard to later on post-college? Yeah, I think I was so um, I had such tunnel vision towards running that I didn't really think about anything else. I mean, I knew that my grades were good and that it helped me get into this amazing school that is Northwestern. Um, but I was like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to be at the trials. I'm going to be at all these things. I'm going to be a professional runner someday. And I didn't have that um, awareness or... I was a little bit delusional. Um, I could say that now because you look back and hindsight is 2020. But I remember 2012 was the year I graduated high school. And that was also the year of the Olympic trials going on. And they were in Eugene. And I remember watching Jordan Hesse run. I remember watching all of these other women run. And I was like, someday in four years, I'm going to be there. Um, and, you know, I... I um I had this other dream to be on television. And, you know, since I was growing up, I grew up in Chicago, like I said before, and TV was on in my house all the time. I'm a diehard Chicago White Sox fan. I'm a diehard sports fan. And um, I always thought, how cool would it be if I could be on TV and talk about sports? I grew up watching Tamron Hall on um, WFLD in the morning. And I used to watch it with my dad and I'd say, Dad, someday I'm going to be Tamron Hall. So I had this other side of me that was really interested in television and storytelling and entertainment. So Northwestern was a great fit because I could enter the Medill School of Journalism, which is a, a fantastic program. Um, but I hadn't really like explored that area. It was just kind of like, oh, if running doesn't work out, I will do this. If I can't um, be Jordan Hesse, I guess I'll be Tamron Hall. Yes. Yeah. Something like that. Um, but again, I was just like so tunnel visioned into running. Right. I mean, that also comes with that age group, right? Like yeah, you only know what you know. And like you're one of the best runners in your area, which is. You grew up in Chicago. It wasn't like you were in the middle of nowhere, like, hey, I'm the best runner around. But like, I know there's also not many people around kind yes. of vibe. Like, it's easy to, especially if you're getting recruited too at that level, it can, it's easy to be like, hey, why not dream? Like, I don't mm -hmm. know what my limits are. Let's just, let's just keep it going. So it's easy to, I wouldn't say fall into that trap, but like, why not be optimistic, right? Why not have big dreams? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, I got to college and my world was 
oh my gosh, my world was open to so many things that I had never been exposed to before. The classes were a lot more challenging than I, you know, than I'd ever experienced in high school. Running was a lot harder. Balancing school and running was as hard as it's ever been. You know, like I said, I had this dream of being on television. So I joined the school TV station. So joining the school TV station while balancing a full load of classes, while balancing being a student athlete in the Big Ten was really a challenge for me. And then mentally to grasp the fact that, you know, every race I had run up until this point, if I wasn't winning, I was pretty darn close to winning, right? I was in that top pack at every race that I had ever run. And now I'm having the best race of my life and I'm in 60th place. It's pretty easy to disengage mentally when um, you're going through that. And I struggled. I think now I can look back and go, I was. it was more of a mental struggle than it was a physical struggle. But when you're in it and that moment, it's hard to dissect what is going wrong, right? Um, and, you know, I fell into a trap um, in college where I struggled with a lot of disordered eating. I don't think I ever had a full-blown eating disorder, but I definitely struggled Um with different behaviors. And I felt pretty lost in college. And, um, you know, I had great teammates. I was at this amazing university where really the world was at my feet. But I suddenly found myself no longer identifying with just being a runner. And it was really hard for me because this was my life. And I was finding joy in other areas, right? Like, I remember we did Northwestern um, Sports Night, which was our school sports talk show. And I got to anchor that show. And this was something that I really found a passion in. And I remember I sort of like felt guilty about it, right? I was like, wait, am I betraying running? Am I turning my back on this? Do I not care as much about running as I used to care about running? Which like wasn't the case at all. It was just different for me. And um College running was, I'm so glad that I finished the four years at Northwestern and I'm so glad that I had that experience to be a student athlete in the Big Ten Conference at an elite university like Northwestern. But honestly, it was probably the toughest four years of my life. It was really emotionally challenging. It was physically challenging. And, um, you know, when it was over, I felt kind of disappointed with my college running career. All right, folks, quick break in the podcast to talk about Janji. The weather has changed, and I am so glad that I have plenty of Janji to wear as the temperature cools down. My go-to move right now are the Janji two-in-one shorts. So a lot of times when I'm running, it's around, you know, the 39 to 44 degree temp. Sometimes that can be a little hard. The two-in-one shorts have you covered. They have that sh the, the soft, light lining underneath the short with some really good pocket space and then a short on top of that. It is really so well done. I'm not a big half-knit, I'm going to say half-tight kind of person. These two-in-one shorts really fit the bill, and they have so many pockets too, which is a wonderful thing, especially once you get into those long runs. Also, the John G. Winter Collection is now available. So many good items that I want to pick up. That is for sure. Go to johng.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com and use code RAMBLING to save 15% on your order today. Also, five-year run guarantee on all of those purchases. Now that time has passed and you look back on your college ranker, do you still feel the same way? Like there was 
a lot of meat left on the bone? Or do you view it differently and say, hey, kind of it worked out the way, you know, it was going to work out in a lot of situations. And I kind of like, I'm going to throw a second question on top of that first question. Yeah, of course. Um, And also say like, what made you stick with it? Because for a lot of college athletes, especially if they're not on a scholarship, and I don't know if you're on a scholarship or not, but most Olympic sports teams, you know, if, if they have scholarships at all, even at the highest level, it's like, there's five scholarships for 12 people and they kind of divvy them up. It becomes like this game of fractions. So what made you stick with it when these other interests that were percolating and coming to fruition and the running was tough and and so on and so forth. So just, I guess with, with hindsight, how do you view your college career and whether it differs at all from how you viewed it, you know, at the time? Uh, I wish I could go back and like hug college me and tell college me it was going to be okay. Um, because I think I was just, was being pretty hard on myself. I was on scholarship, so that helped me make the decision to stay. And then I also still love to run no matter how poorly the races were going, no matter, you know, how disappointed I was in my times or my finishing places, I still had, um, this beautiful sport that I loved so much and that I felt like gave me so much and I felt like I owed it to the sport to continue doing it. Um, you know, running has given me my best friends. It's given me um, a world-class opportunity to attend a school like Northwestern, which wouldn't have been an option for me or my family had I not received an athletic scholarship. So I just felt like I owed it to the sport to continue doing it because running was there for me and I needed to be there for running. And, um, it, it helped me, you know, it was like, it was this part of my identity. It was, it was part of who I was. And, you know, I look back and sometimes I think you need to go through those hard times, right? Like, I think there's always a message. There's something that is like a a larger lesson that's being taught to us during those hard times. And it was like, Hey, you know, maybe running's not working out that well, but like you're at this awesome school and you have the world at your feet. Like, let's take advantage of that. Let's figure out who Megan really is. Like, who is Megan the student? Who is Megan the friend? Who is Megan outside of running? Because we really are so much more than just runners, right? Like we have a lot of other interests, especially for people listening to this podcast, because, you know, this is this focus on focuses on amateur runners. Like, you know, running is very important to all of us, but we also have other things that uh, fill our cup as well. Right. And I think a lot of people who listen to this show kind of fall into two buckets of like, hey, they come to running later in life where like the the version of them is pretty well established and the running version of them is the one that keeps evolving. And then yes. there's folks like you where, you know, athletics or running was something that was a staple of their life. And then there was probably this interim period where it wasn't. And then they come back to it and they come back to it a different person than when Mm -hmm. they entered it early on in their life. So with that being the case, talk to me about your 20s post-college and you alluded to this uh, at the beginning of the show, your your relationship with running and how it may have vacillated and evolved during that time where it was no longer a staple of your life and also wasn't a mandatory part of your life like it was being a, a scholarship college athlete. Yeah, I remember like a week after cross country had ended. And I remember sitting in my car and I called my mom crying and I was like, I don't know what to do. And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, mom, my whole life I've had a coach telling me 
where to be, when to be there, and what to do. And for the first time in my life, I don't have that and I don't know what to do. It was like, you know, a lot of kids experience at their freshman year of college, right? You go away and you're like, freedom. I I can do whatever I want. What is this world? I had that happen my senior year of college where it was just like, what is happening? You know? So um, it was, you know, it's not all bad, but change is really hard and change is like constant in life. So you have to just get used to it. But um, I knew I didn't have to run anymore. But like I said, running always just brought me joy. Now I was I was damaged and I was um, dealing with some things in running that weren't good. So I sort of just made the decision like, I'm going to leave the watch at home. I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave the watch at home and I'm just going to do this for me. And I signed up for a marathon because that's what you do, right? You sign up for a marathon. (laughs) Um, But it wasn't really like training for it. I was like, you know, I'm going to do this um, and I am just going to have fun with it and, you know, see what happens. I like had three hours as a goal because I sort of was naive to what marathons were. And, you know, for those who've run 5k, 10k, ran in college, ran in high school, et cetera, marathoning is a whole different sport. And I think it's taken me like five years to learn that, (laughs) but it really is like a different sport than just running. Um, especially when you're racing 5k, 10k, 6k, whatever it may be. Um, So yeah, I just like, I really loved the time that I would get. I would love what it did for my mind. And when I wasn't wearing a watch, it like alleviated that pressure. I didn't have to look at what the time was and, and keep fighting it. And, you know, I just, I just ran and, um, it was, and I ran this marathon and I remember standing at the start line where we had their GPS watches and their gels and all of this stuff. And I had like a Timex watch and no gels. And I was like, uh, who are all these people? And like, am I underprepared? Which I was, I just didn't know it at the time. Um, and you know, I ran like a 320. So I, but I, again, I was like, oh, I qualified for Boston. That's great. And I wasn't at that place where I was like really hungry to chase these goals. I was just out there to be out there. And that's what I needed at the time. And I probably spent the next three to five years running in that manner. I wouldn't go to a track. I wouldn't do any workouts. I, my long run, I'd be like, you know, I'm going to set up a timer on my phone for an hour. And once I hit an hour, I'm going to turn back and run back an hour. So that was sort of where I was at with running at that point. And the exact opposite of what we heard you describe, even middle school. Yes. In terms of yes. like how you approach the sport. Oh, yes. I, I needed that time though. And I'm really glad that I didn't quit running because truly through thick and thin, through the highs, through the lows, through the disordered eating to where I'm at now. It's um, it's made me whole and it's made me who I am and it will always be so special to me. I like get emotional talking about running, but it, um, it it's that time that I have to really reflect on whatever is going on. And during those three to five years where I ran that way, I was making so many strides in my professional career. So running was an outlet for me to release stress and um, just to exercise. That's what it was. I was just exercising. I was out there. My job was really demanding. Um, and that, that's that's what it's, it served that purpose in my life. It wasn't about the times. It wasn't about the races. It was just about being out there, getting fresh air, 
you know, looking at the beautiful trees, feeling the sun on my face and, um, you know, feeling that little, that little burn in your chest that you get after a really long run that feels kind of good. Yeah. And it's, it's a, a stark contrast from how you described your, you know, finishing up college and feeling like a broken person in yeah. certain ways where all of a sudden in your mid twenties, you're running for health. Yes. As opposed to, you know, three to five years before that, where running while a healthy and healthy endeavor in most respects was leading to an unhealthy lifestyle in others. How has your relationship with food evolved post-college running? Uh, and I'd love to extrapolate that out also to just the the way nutrition and fueling is talked about in popular culture now as opposed to the way it was when i say popular culture i mean like popular running culture um it is now as opposed to the way it was talked about say 10 years ago when this was you know a part of your life that wasn't going great so i used to look at my plate and just see numbers i would be like oh that's that's 200 calories that's 500 calories that's this. so my plate in my brain just looked like a bunch of numbers and i had a certain number that i could get to at the end of the day and i would stress about you know if i was going to be too high of that number and i remember sometimes like i hesitate to even share this because for anybody out there who's struggling i i don't want anybody to do what I did because when I look back at college, like sometimes I don't even have any memories of college running because I would wake up and think, oh my God, um, how am I going to get out of eating with this person? Or like going to meals would really stress me out a lot. And then I remember like if I was hungry, I'd be like, oh, drink a Diet Coke. It will suppress your hunger, which like is not healthy at all. And I would never recommend anybody to do it. And I just didn't have a good relationship with food at all. It was something that really stressed me out. Um, and then I met my husband who, who was, you know, he was just my coworker at the time we met at work and, um, we've been married for a little over two years now. And my husband is a total foodie. He loves to cook. He loves to try restaurants and he really sees food as an experience. And I had never seen food that way. I saw food as something that was really scary, that was going to make me gain weight and that was going to make me get slow. And how could you enjoy a meal? I was trying to get in, get out as fast as I could. Um, and so when I met my husband and he started cooking meals, I suddenly was so much less stressed about what I was eating because it was all healthy. He was cooking it right in front of me. And then he would tell me this awesome story about a new chef who opened a new restaurant in Boston and how we had to go there and check it out. So he really changed my world in a lot of ways, but in regards to eating, he showed me how to enjoy food, which was something I had never been able to do. And as soon as I started enjoying food, food became a whole lot less stressful, right? And then I wasn't looking at my plate as a bunch of numbers. I was looking at it like, oh my gosh, I really love the flavor of whatever it may be mixed together. And that makes me happy. And I enjoy that. So, you know, it took a lot of work. It took um, a long time. And, you know, like, I'm not going to lie, like I still deal with things, right? I mean, there are certain behaviors that take years and years and years to undo. And there are some things that sort of stick with you forever. Now I'm in a much better place than I've ever been in before. 
But my husband teaching me, and I don't even know if he did that. Like, he doesn't even know that he did this. It was just him being himself. But him teaching me how to um, enjoy food changed my relationship with food forever. That's great. And I appreciate you talking about this because this is how we can help other people get through this sort of thing, right? Because there are so many college athletes especially female college athletes who deal with this as someone who worked on a college campus for 15 years. Like this was just, it's, you see it quite often and you try to get to the heart of it and you really try to get to get to an athlete before they start going through this. I remember on the relay podcast that that we do talking with Kara Goucher and she was talking all the time about how like for her, it was actually in college. It was when she started spending a lot of time with Adam Goucher, who at Mm -hmm. the time was like, you know, the, the NCAA champion at the time, like they would just be hanging out at like one of their teammates' apartments. And he's like, what are you doing? Eat these chi- Like, why are you talking? Why are you approaching food this way? And again, they're, you know, this brash college kid, whatever. But like, it was like for her, it reminds me of what you just talked about. How like, it like opened her. I was like, oh, well, if he can do it, what, yeah. what am I, what am I holding on to here? So I appreciate you talking about that and, and, and going through that process. Now, Heading into New York this year, you had a very unique experience where 15, was it 15 weeks before the marathon, you donated a kidney. Walk us through this process. This is, I mean, starting with like the decision to donate a kidney, and then we'll talk about like the, the, you know, race preparation after that. But you don't hear about this very often. We've talked about it a couple times in the podcast, usually once every year or two. So I'd love to talk about like this process by which, you know, you came to this decision and all the things leading up to it. Well, I kind of want to like just go back for a second. Like I, I meet my husband in, in Boston, right? And like my world is open to this to this eating. And, you know, this was a time I actually was living in Watertown, Massachusetts, and I was roommates with Molly Seidel. So oh. Molly and I lived together for a little over a year. Um, it was Molly and I and a, and a couple other professional runners. Um, I ran with Molly's sister when I was in college and I was looking for a place to live in Boston. They had an open room in their house. So it just kind of worked out. And and that was the year that I met my husband. And, you know, um, Molly was going through a lot of things. She was still with Saucony at that time. And I was going through a lot of things, just, you know, adjusting to post-college life. I was still in that relationship with running where I wasn't running with a watch, but I had an eight mile loop that I would run every single morning. And I would say it's my eight before eight. And um, you know, I was, it was just an interesting time for both of us. And I think we both knew that, um, we never like sat down and talked about it, but like, I think we were both really hurting from a lot of different things and to have Molly there, like we could kind of communicate without words. Right. So she knew that I was damaged and, and I knew, you know, she was going through what she was going through and we never really sat down and talked about it, but we always just had each other's back. And even like to this day, watching Molly, you know, overcome what she's overcome and, and deal with what she's deal she's dealt with. And, um, in a very open way too, she's expressed it in a lot of, in a lot of mediums. And it just, it makes my heart so happy. And, um, you know, she sent me a text after the New York city marathon and, she sent me a text um, when I was in the hospital after I donated my kidney. And, you know, and every time, like, my relationship with her is just so special. While we don't, like, text very often or we don't talk every day, like, I know that she was someone who watched, was with me, like, during some of my lowest lows. And, um, you know, now we are both past that and we're both doing so well in our careers and in our lives outside of running and in our lives, you know, in running. Um, that it's just been really rewarding. And she inspired me a lot because I remember when she was getting ready to run the Olympic trials four years ago. 
And I was like, I know Molly and she's going to qualify. Like Molly does the best when no one expects anything from her. And I was like, I know that she's just going to freaking do it. I know she is. And um, I remember watching that race on my phone, um, like live streaming it. And my husband, Andrew, was with me and we were like screaming our faces off for Molly. And not only that, but watching all of the women who qualified for the trials, over 300 women. And I remember going on the website and scrolling and seeing lawyers and mothers and accountants and business people who, you know, were a runner and like I talked about that word and before. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe I don't just have to be a runner, right? Like maybe this doesn't have to consume me because here's over 300 women who are doing running and maybe I could too. But my relationship before it was like all in, then it didn't work out. And now I was in this place where I was sort of out. I was still in, but I was, I was not like I once was. So I was really inspired and I actually had a teammate, Julia Buford qualify. And I remember talking to her and she was just so balanced. She was running, but she was you know, going to a brewery after a run. And she was having so much fun doing what she was doing. And one of the reasons I couldn't run with a watcher, I couldn't go to a track was because it wasn't fun for me. But then I have my former teammate, Julia, and she's doing so fantastic in running, but she's also having fun and she has a career where she's killing it. I was like, you know, Megan, you don't have to just be one thing. You know, you can be a lot of things. So I had this little inkling and um, I hired a coach in Boston through this this gym called My Stride. And um, I got back on the track and I started wearing a watch and I started really training again. And I told myself the second it's not fun anymore, I'm not going to do it. So I ended up running. I was training for Boston at the time and I was having a great build because it was the first time I've trained in a long time. So seeing these times was really motivating to me. And um, I ran like a 125 half. And for me, I was like, okay, that's pretty good. I can do this. It was down in Falmouth, Massachusetts. Um, And I was really excited about running Boston Marathon and then pandemic shut down the world. So uh, it was tough because it was like, oh, I'm finally back. And now the world shuts down and there are no races, but um, I was still loving it. So I continued to, you know, keep going. And um, then kind of when the world opened back up again, it was 2021 and um, I got a new job with WWE and it required me to move to Orlando, Florida. man, we just like made all this progress and now we're moving. So I moved to Orlando, Florida and it is hot as hell. Oh my God. So I'm like, how am I going to run in this? It We've was had May. a lot of people on the show who are associated with the Track Shack Running Club. And they yes. every time we talk about like just like running in the heat and it's like, oh my God, I do not envy the people who are going to be running there the first weekend in February for the Olympic trials. Let me just I say that. No. So it is hot and I'm like, I can't wear a watch again because I am not going to be able to run these times. So I had a little five mile loop from my house and every day I would run the five mile loop. And oh my gosh, I remember sometimes I'd be three miles in and I'd have to stop and just take a, take a, take a breather. So I wasn't, I was having a hard time making friends in Florida because I was traveling 52 weeks a year. So how do you make friends when you're on the road all the time? You don't. 
Um, you were everywhere and, but Florida. Yes, but I was living in Florida. So I went to Track Shack because I drove by it and I needed new running shoes. And I said, you know, I want to see what what the new latest technologies are. So I went to Track Shack and this um, gentleman named Nathan fit me for shoes. And I told him, you know, I ran in college and uh, I'm, I'm kind of getting back into it, but I'm not really sure. It's just my job is really demanding. And he gave me his card and he said, well, there's a group of us who meet at the track every Tuesday and Thursday at six o'clock. You should come. So a.m. or p.m.? P.m. So I took the card and I just put it on the counter and I was like, you know, runners are a little intense. I don't I don't know if I'd like that. Like a group of runners, that might just be too much for me. I don't think I could do that. I don't know if I'm going to go. And then I was caught myself feeling sorry for myself. I was like, I have no friends. I have no one to run with. And I was like, you know what, Megan? Go to the track man up and let's you know no one's knocking on your door to come hang out like go make friends right like how did you make friends as a kid you joined you know basketball or you joined swimming or you know that's how you made friends as a kid and really as an adult it's no different you have to put yourself outside of your comfort zone to make those friends so i went to the track and we did thousands that day and i i was pretty happy with myself i was like oh that was great and it wasn't nearly as hard as doing thousands alone <laughs> so um i kept coming out to the track and i had this great group of people and shout out to coach nate because he got me back into running and chasing times and chasing workouts and and all these good things and it was just a such a great balance right like i had these people in my life that cared about me, um, whether I was on TV or I wasn't on TV, or and they cared about me just as a person. Um, and it was so nice to get texts like, hey, we're running on Sunday, do you wanna come? No longer did I have to um, run on my own, which running on your own can get really lonely and really hard. Um, and it just was a nice, like I felt this sense of community. And now suddenly this place that I moved to because work told me I had to move to became home. And it didn't feel like that before I met the people at Track Shack. And let me ask you the, the dichotomy here between like you're living in outside of Boston in Watertown with Molly Seidel and you're around a lot of pro runners. So like while you're not taking running seriously, serious running is still around you. Like you yeah. are still very much inculcated in that culture. And you go down and Track Shack is one of the best running clubs in the country. So uh, that um, this is not a shot at them. But all of a sudden the people you're running with now, it's not – the future, you know, medalist in the Olympics isn't the person you're running thousands with. It's, you know, another very good runner who's just a per normal person who's just, you know, bumping around, you know, living in Orlando. So what was that like for you in terms of like comparing that aspect of community versus the running community you were in with Boston, which while, again, you were taking it very low key, the people around you weren't exactly, you know, approaching it in a low key manner. Yeah, I don't think Molly and I maybe ran together once. We didn't really run together. I mean, she's obviously crazy fast. So I think I did like one warm up with her and I was like, I don't know, have a good one. <laughs> um, but yeah, we didn't really run together very much. Um, and I was really focused on building my career in sports television. So that was more of my focus than it was on, you know, being I was more worried about like my um my shows that I had to do than I was about like getting a run in for me. Gotcha. If I missed a run, it really wasn't like that big of a deal. Um, I like, so you, you, know, you weren't heading down to like the BU track ripping 200. No. Oh God. No, no. I, um, towards the end, like 
after Molly and I lived together for a year and then I lived in Boston for two more years and we didn't live together. It was like nothing personal. It was just like she had moved elsewhere and, and I had moved and, you know, it just, it, it didn't work out the way that we moved together. Um, I started like running around, like running fast again in 2020 in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I would go to the Harvard track and I, I kind of got ingratiated with the Boston running crew, but not a ton because it was like I was on my way out when I started to get passionate about doing workouts and stuff then. And now I was with all of these people who um, it just, it was a, it was eye opening for me because I had this idea that if you were going to be a successful runner, it had to be your identity and it had to be all that you did. So now I'm in Orlando and I'm running with people who, again, are lawyers, are business people, like have nine to five jobs, sometimes eight to six jobs. Like, you know, they have 12 hour days, but we're still finding times to run. Um, that was really inspiring to me. And it showed me, hey, if these people can do it, I can too. And running doesn't have to be all of me. It can just be a part of me. It can be a really important part of me, but it doesn't have to be all of me. Let me, let's talk about that because you self-described earlier that you're either all in or all out. And your evolution to running at this point has seemed to be like this search for this middle ground. Mm -hmm. So how have you been able to keep running firmly entrenched in that middle ground without it kind of veering towards the all in or the all out kind of like off ramps. So again, like I said before, with my something is better than nothing, that mantra has helped me with my running so much because I learned like, okay, you missed a run today. Is your fitness gone? No. Like, does it... Okay, you so, had so to that, take you're not no off. longer racked with guilt. I know even yes. even today, even like amateur runners who like who dream of someday running like a four hour marathon, like they would mm-hmm. they would do anything to get that. Even those people, again, and I'm one of those people. Like they miss a run, and they're like, oh my gosh, like it ruins the next twelve hours of their life because they're just yes. like dreading that feeling. Yes, and I am a recovering perfectionist. I am a type A minus personality. And I think just letting go has really allowed me to be my best in all things, right? Like before it'd be like, well, I missed that long run. Might as well not even do the marathon. It's like, no, Megan, like you're fine. Your fitness is still there. And then, you know, I'm running with all these track shack people and I finally had this like hope in running again. And it was really inspiring to me because I was working and I was on national television once a week and traveling all over the world for 52 weeks a year. And I broke three hours in the marathon. I was like, oh my gosh, it's possible. I can do it. Right. Like, and not only that, but I um, broke three hours in the marathon in Sacramento and Friday night I was in Buffalo. Right. So I like did a cross country flight, the whole thing. So like I can do it all and I don't need to be like just Focus on the task at hand and the rest is going to take care of itself. So on Friday, you're at work, you're on TV, it's SmackDown. We got to focus on SmackDown. The second SmackDown is over, we can turn the page and we can move to catching the flight to CIM. And then once you're at CIM, we could, so one thing at a time. And, you know, not everything needs to be absolutely perfect. Not all the I's need to be dotted and all the T's need to be crossed. Your body's been doing this for a really long time. 
and it knows what it's doing. So just get out of your head and it's going to be fine is kind of what I had to really teach myself. Whereas before it was like, well, I missed the Thursday workout. Might as well not even go to the race and be like, well, the race is four months away. You're going to be fine. Like, it's all right. right. Like life happens, right? Right. Like if you're not striving for excellence, what's the point? Yeah. And I, like I said, like a recovering perfectionist type A minus personality. And I feel like a lot of us runners have that where we're, where, you know, we, everything needs to be exactly perfect. And, you know, just kind of trying to quiet those voices in my head that still remind me of that um, has been a challenge, but it's also been really rewarding. I had a um, experience that kind of changed my whole mindset with running. It was not this past Chicago Marathon, but the Chicago Marathon before that. I was training to run CIM. And CIM, I wanted to break three hours out. I had never done it before. I had run a 120 half. So I knew sub three hours was in me. It just had happened for a variety of reasons, um, mainly mental. But um, it hadn't happened yet. And my coach, Nate, at the time had said, hey, um, I got free bibs to Chicago. Does anybody want to go run Chicago? And I didn't respond to the text. So he side texted me and said, I'm so surprised that you didn't say you wanted one of those bibs. And I said, well, I do want one of those bibs, but I have to work in Philadelphia the night before. But I did look and there's a 5.45 a.m. flight that lands in Chicago at 6.45. The race starts at 7.30. There's a chance oh I God. could make it. Oh my so, God. you know, Chicago wasn't a goal race anyway. CIM was the goal race. And I was like, you know, I'm doing this for fun. I'm from Chicago. How cool would it be if this actually happened? I'll take one of those bibs. <laughs> so I took the bib, call my cousin, tell her the situation. And she goes, all right, I'll get your bib for you. And I'll be there waiting at Midway Airport. The second you land, I can get you downtown before they close the roads. So I end up working the show in Philadelphia. Um, I remember running out the door with a peanut butter sandwich in hand. <laughs> and my coworkers are like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm running a marathon tomorrow. And here I am, full glam of makeup, fake eyelashes, hair done, trotting around in high heels and a dress, running to my hotel room. I get into bed at like a little after midnight. Alarm is set to wake up at 3.30 in the morning to make it to the airport. I go to the airport and I was like, just get on this flight and then, you know, we'll worry about the rest as it comes. Get on the flight. Flight's not delayed or anything. I land and literally run from the gate to my cousin's car, changed quick in the car. So we made it to um, like to downtown Chicago right before they closed the roads. They closed the roads at seven. I think we like squeaked in at 658 um, she got me like three quarters a mile away from the start. So I jogged on over and I had a friend who was trying to run 320. So I told her I might be there and I would love to run with you. But if I don't make it, it's all right. Well, so <laughs> like, good luck finding her, right? So it's not like she's exactly. like, one of one, she's like one of 10 people running the race or something. Yeah. So I call her. I'm like, I'm in our corral. Like, where are you? She's like, oh, we're on our way. So I was like, wow, I'm early. You know, like after all this, I'm early. And um, I didn't know how my legs were going to feel because I just gotten off a plane and didn't sleep, you know. So um, the race goes off and I'm running with my friend Ollie and she has a group of runner friends. They run for Edge in Chicago. I don't know if people listening are familiar. So I'm running with them for the first half of the race and it was 
totally euphoric. The city was alive. The weather was perfect. I felt like I was flying. And they had a pretty solid group of runners together. And I just said, like, I feel really good, you guys. I'm going to go ahead. And they were like, go, go, go for it. So after 13.1, I took off. And I was just like, you know, maybe I could PR. Like, you never know. Like, let's just keep going, see where I can take this. And I ended up running a 306, a 306 low, which was my PR at the time. And not only that, but I had an absolute blast running it. And I was like, that's what this is about. This is about having fun. This is about doing things like that. And suddenly the pressure of going sub three was gone. And I was like, well, if I can run a 306, sleeping for three hours and flying, you know, to from Philadelphia to Chicago in a day, I could certainly break, break three hours at CIM. And then I was able to do it at CIM. But that race was the first time that I really had fun racing since high school racing. And I feel like I've just been riding that high since then. So this year, um, like you mentioned, I donated a kidney in July. I had committed to running the New York City Marathon in probably January for my works charity. My work raises money for a fantastic cause called Connor's Cure. It's through the Jimmy V Foundation and they support um, pediatric cancer research. So I committed to running this for work in January. And the opportunity to donate a kidney, which I will get into as well, came up. I thought it was gonna happen in May. So I was like, well, I'll have plenty of time to train for New York. And then the surgery got pushed back to July. So I said, well, I'm probably not gonna be able to run New York at all. It's just probably not gonna happen. But then when I got back into running, I was like, you know, I feel, I feel pretty good. I did a 12 mile run and it felt pretty good. And I got up to 16 and 16 felt really good. So I said, okay, I can definitely finish this race. There's no question about it. Maybe I'll run 3.30, maybe I'll pace somebody, but I can definitely finish this race. So I decided I was gonna do it. And then two weeks before, since I wasn't tapering because I didn't have a build, I didn't have any quality sessions or anything like that. I said, um, I I did an 18 miler and it went exceptionally well. And I was like, "Hmm, I might be able to break three hours at this race. We'll see about weather. And I looked at the forecast. It was a perfect day. And I said, you know what, Megan, what do you have to lose? Just go there, have fun and go after it. So I ended up running 302.13 and, um, I was thrilled. I had to, I know this, like, I I hate to admit this, not really, but like part of me does. The last four miles, I had to walk twice just because my legs were so tight and so cramped that they wouldn't come under me. So I was like, all right, walk to that street sign right there and then start running. So I walked to the street sign and then I'd look at my watch and I was right back on 650 pace. So I was like, all right, I made the right move there. Um, now, seeing how close I was to breaking three hours, I'm like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have walked. But you never know. If I didn't walk, maybe I would have ran an 8.30 mile there. Maybe I would have, That you happens know... so often to people, especially, yeah. at that, especially on that course, because it's a brutal course. Yeah. So I was really pumped with it. And like this race wasn't about time. This race wasn't about anything like that. This race was about having fun and doing something with my body that I didn't think I'd be able to do. And then, you know, showing people who are out there 
it, that think, you know, if I donate an organ, it's all over for me. I'll never be able to do what I used to do. Showing people that that's not true and that you can donate an organ. You can do really hard things and still come back to the person you were before you did that. Absolutely. We had a gentleman, Phil Shin, on the podcast like a year and a half ago who gave a kidney to his best friend and came back and, again, wasn't sure what it would mean from an athletic perspective. And it came back and, like, started doing ultra marathons. You I know, like, that. really, just, you know, it, it didn't it didn't handicap him in any way, right? Yeah. And, but, you know, it's, it's a major surgery. So, of course, you were going to be, you know, potentially nervous about it. Kudos for you for, like... <laughs> For, for making it work on, on race day, you know, it would have been easy to be like, all right, like, oh, I'm not feeling great. Yeah, atypical build. I'm going to toss in the towel, maybe just kind of, you know, cruise into into Central Park here. But you you made it work. And I, I love the idea of like, all right, quick little reset. Then I'll get back to it. Like that's staying in the fight. Yeah, I knew I had a shot at breaking three if everything went well. But I mean, look, I had like very minimal training leading up to this because my surgery was 15 weeks ago and then I had to take four weeks off of running and then I basically started from ground zero, right? Like, you know, your fitness is still there and your body remembers. That's like what's one of the most remarkable things about your body is like how quickly it can go from zero, you know, back up because you have been running for years and whatnot. But um, yeah, I didn't like I ran a 10K. I met like some some wonderful, amazing people here now that I moved to Connecticut. I know I'm like jumping around a lot here, but I no longer live in Florida. I now live in Connecticut and I've had to find a new group of runners in Connecticut because for me, running now is about community and about being with other people. And it's not something that I want to do alone. Whereas before, I think I needed my alone time. And now like I, I really want this to be something where I can make friends and where I can run with other people. So I found this great community here in Connecticut through the McCurdy running group and um, from Heather Knight Peck, who is just a inspiring, amazing, wonderful human being. I heard um, you say that she's the queen and you couldn't have put it any better. <laughs> she is. She she is. She's been on this podcast many times. I know Heather well. She is an absolute force of nature. She, I tell her that she is my Connecticut fairy godmother. So um, she's just amazing. And she has this ability to see something in people that they don't see in themselves. So I was, again, feeling sorry for myself and really down and bummed to be in Connecticut. Oh, I just made all these friends in Florida and now I have to move again. So I literally typed in on Instagram, running Connecticut and Heather's name popped up and I'm scrolling through a page. And so I just messaged her and I was like, do you run and can I come run with you? And she invited me out for a run and then got me to volunteer at the McCurdy micro marathon that was going on and has I was there. Oh, you, well, I was there too. I was at yep. st station stop seven. So I was at, I was doing two stations. I was doing 14 and 15. Oh my gosh. Actually, I coached the person who was at station eight, Britt Gunser. Okay. Yeah, I, I actually coached her. Yeah, I was, I was working stations 14 and 15. Wow. Okay, so I was there and Heather got me into um, volunteering for that race, which was what an inspiring thing to watch. Oh, I mean, watching McKenna Myler smile the entire race. That's what I was saying. I've never seen trial. someone so joyous while oh. working so hard. Smiled the entire race had a baby six months ago and just qualified for the trials. That is what I'm here for. And that is what I didn't have 
when I was that college runner who felt so lost and felt like if running's not my identity, I can't do it, right? Like I didn't have that word and in my vocabulary and McKenna and so many other women who qualified for the trials and whatnot are showing that you can do those things. So that really just gave me so much confidence. And then, you know, working with Heather, we've only been working together for, for a little bit now, but she got me into that 10K race and I went out like a bat out of hell for that 10K race and hit the first mile in 545. I was like, Megan, oh what are you doing? <laughs> like you haven't run a 545 mile in forever. So I was like, well, this last part is gonna suck and you're just gonna have to suck it up and finish this race because you're not quitting. But uh, yeah, it's it's been really fun uh, working with Heather. And after I had that 18 mile run and I sent her my split, she was like, you know, I think you might be able to break three. And I was like, I think you're right. I think I might be able to. But as soon as I hit like 22, now I did go out a little fast at New York. And if I had that race again, I probably would have held back a little on the first half because I forgot how brutal the back half of New York is. Yeah, that's a tough one. That oh final 10K in New York is, is no joke. Mile 23, like that huge hill. What the heck? Oh my God, it's cruel. It's just cruel. I was on a podcast, it was two days ago. It was a group, it was a group chat on Relay. And I think it was either Peter Bromka or Tommy Run said, like, if you want to meet God, go to tw- go to mile 23.5 of the New York City Marathon. I think he's standing right there because, like, that hill is a killer. Oh, yeah. I underestimated how hard that course was. I, I just I forgot about it. I had run New York before when I was in my no watch phase, and I just never remember it being that hard. But this course is brutal. Um, and I felt every step of that, uh, the back half of New York City on Sunday. Um, but yeah, like another thing Heather and I've been working on is fueling. So like, you know, trying to get the gels down, which is something I really never focused on before. So that's been opening my eyes to a lot of things. I totally forgot where I was going with this complete tangent, but, um, working with Heather and finding this community in Connecticut has inspired me and it brought me to New York with a newfound set of confidence and like a new cheering section. Oh my gosh, I met so many people that were like, I was tracking you, I was watching you. And I think it's through Heather in the McCurdy group because she really um, does a great job of bringing people together. Yeah, she's remarkable. And people want to come, people want to listen to the show. I think we did one a year and a half ago after she set a master's record at Boston. We, we did a complete deep dive, and that was like the third time she'd been on the show. People and what to go I back love about Heather, too, like she is, she is at the top of her field. Yes. She was a CEO, badass in the fashion industry. Like, you know, she was the boss. She was running the show. And now she's transitioned into coaching and, um, She's just inspired me in a lot of ways because now running is not all of me. It's a part of me. It's a very important part of me, but it is just a part of me. And I have professional goals that I want to accomplish. Um, I have running goals that I want to accomplish. And looking at someone like Heather, I can finally say to myself, man, you can do both. You can do, you can do all of these things, right? It's not going to be perfect. There, there's no way to, you know, make it all perfect, but that's okay. You can, you can really do this. Yeah. She really does a great job of setting the message and embodying it as well of, of just find a way, 
There yes. are answers. You just have to go find them. If, mm -hmm. if you work hard to find the answers to things, there's going to be hurdles, but you're going to be able to get around them if you want to and you work hard enough. And she's just like, she's like the MacGyver of running. Like she has an injury, fine. She just comes out like, I will find the best PT. I will do all the exercises. Like nothing stands in her way. And there's plenty, there's been plenty of things that have gotten in her way. She just works around them. And, mm -hmm. and uh, she definitely has that never say die attitude to her goals. And yeah. it's super inspiring. Life happens, right? And then, I mean, a lot of life is learning how to improvise and learning how to respond to whatever life throws at you, whether that be in, you know, professional, uh, in your profession, whether it be with work or whether it be with running, it's all about how you respond to whatever is thrown your way. So um, working with Heather has been a lot of fun and she was waiting for me at the finish line. And one of the first things she said, she said, you went out a little fast. And I was like, I know. <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. Coaches <laughs> no. be coaching. But yeah, I was like, I know I did. I did. But as soon as I had hit like mile 22, my legs were sort of screaming at me like, what are you doing? We haven't run 20 miles in months. Oh my gosh. Why are you doing this to us? Um, but pushing my body through that and, um, coming through in a time that is pretty respectable and that I was really proud of oh, yeah. um, made me happy. For sure. All right. We got to get going in a second. Speaking of balancing everything, I got to pick up my son. School's, oh my school's gosh, about to I'm end. so sorry. We haven't no. even talked about the kidney or anything. You're going to well, have that, to have me back on. Well, I shared a... my kidney story on Instagram. I did donate my kidney to well, a would, That doesn't be the last question. Okay. So I was, it was, it's, tell, tell us the kidney story because, you know, this is not, this is an important story. And it's not, sometimes people donate a kidney. It's like, okay, like I can't not do it. This doesn't yes. seem to be, this doesn't seem to be your story. So I'd love to hear more about that. Um, just because it's something that I think can, you can, people can change other people's lives. Yes. And this is, it can be a very important part of that. So a year ago, I honestly didn't even really know what kidneys did. I knew we had two of them, but I didn't really know much more about kidneys. And I knew that kidney stones are allegedly more painful than childbirth. But other than that, I knew little to nothing about kidneys. I'm at work. One of my coworkers um, shares with me that he is in kidney failure. So I said to my coworker, what goes into donating a kidney? I didn't even know you could be a living donor. I thought organ donation was a box you checked on your license. You got a little heart on your license and God forbid if something happened to you, your organs could be used to help another human being. That's what I thought it was. So now I'm learning about living donation and my friend tells me the surgery is laparoscopic. And I said, no way. He said, yep, laparoscopic, one to two nights in the hospital. That's it. He goes, I know I'm biased because I need a kidney, but it doesn't sound like for the donor, the surgery is really that intense. So I was like, well, laparoscopic surgery, my sister had her appendix out, you know, like that's, you know, she's fine. Like I could do a laparoscopic surgery. So I asked my friend, do you think that I could have kids if I donated a kidney? And he said, well, I know that you can because, um, you know, I've read about it. And I said, do you think that I could run marathons after donating a kidney? Because I'm pretty sure that you can, but you'd have to ask a doctor. So I go home and I'm Googling, like we all, you know, that's how we find out everything in the world. I Google like kidney donation. And so I end up on kidney.org and I probably spent the whole weekend just reading this website, reading about the risks, reading about, um, you know, what paired donation is, what to do if you're not a match, what the matching process works out, everything about kidneys. I'd become like an internet expert on kidneys. So I come to the conclusion that I really want to do this. I want to donate my kidney. I want to help somebody. So I call my coworker and I say, hey, if you need somebody to test, I will gladly test for you to donate a kidney. And so I go and I 
get a simple blood test, a simple tissue typing test. And at this point I was all in, I wanted to do this for sure. I get a call and they say, Hey, you know, thank you so much for testing. Unfortunately, you're not a blood type match. And the person you tested on behalf of has found a blood type match. So he's going to get his kidney and, hey, and all is well. Great. Thank you so much. So I'm thrilled, right? I'm so happy that my coworker is getting a kidney. This is wonderful. No stress for his family. But I was also really sad. I was like, I really wanted to do this. Like, I just think it would be awesome and, and how empowering that you could do this and, and really help somebody who's going through something. And I had an aunt who passed away pretty suddenly before this. And, you know, I just remember there was no hope. And it was like, wow, for these families, I could give them some hope. So I was bummed. Um, I shouldn't even say bummed. I was devastated that I couldn't donate my kidney. And it just stuck with me. So now a couple of weeks later, I'm on a group chat some old co-workers from the Patriots, my husband's on this group chat as well, and someone was talking about kidney stones. And I sort of sarcastically said to them, hey, if anybody ever needs a kidney, let me know. I just tested to donate for someone and it didn't work out. And I sent the Oprah gift that was like, you get a car, you get a car. And I just wrote, you get a kidney, you get a kidney. My husband's in the other room and he's like, are you are you nuts? Like, are you dying to get rid of this thing? Like, what? I thought we were done with this. I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, so the phone rings, it's my old boss. And he says, hey, are you being serious about that kidney? And I said, yeah, why? He said, really? Like you just tested? I was like, yes, I just tested for someone. Why? He's like, well, I need it. I said, for, for what? He says, my wife, Margaret, is in kidney failure and she needs a kidney. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is meant to be. Like, what are the chances that this, this happens. So I said, put her on the phone right now. So he puts me on speaker. I said, Margaret, what blood type are you? She's, oh, I'm B. We're not a match. But I said, look, they have this program called the voucher program through national kidney registry, where you can essentially donate on behalf of somebody and start a chain reaction. And then that person you donate on behalf of gets your voucher and they get a kidney as well. Takes a little bit longer to test, but I told them I'm more than happy to start testing for you. If you guys find someone who's an O before I'm done testing, please, by all means, do what is best for you and your family and take kidney. So I started testing and I got the green light that I could donate right before the Boston Marathon. And I was testing at Mass General because that was her hospital and whatnot. So I um, got the green light, thought it was going to be in May. It ended up getting pushed back to July because of a couple of work conflicts that I had. Um, so on July 12th, my kidney was um, transplanted to a stranger. I've since connected with him. His name is Joseph. He lives in Los Angeles. He has an eight-year-old daughter and his mother donated on behalf of him. So as soon as my kidney was taken out of my body, it went on a plane to California, was transplanted into Joseph, and then Joseph's mother donated on behalf of him. So her kidney went to somebody else who had somebody who donated on behalf of them. So their kidney went to somebody else. So my kidney started a chain reaction that allowed for four other people to get a kidney. Now, if that isn't inspiring, <laughs> I don't know what is Megan. This has been an absolute tour de force. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like I would want to talk to you for another two hours. <laughs> There's so many things we didn't get to cover today, but I'm so grateful for the things that we did. Thank yes. you so much for coming on the show. It's so greatly appreciated. Matt, thank you. We'll have to do it again. Lots to chat about. I will be at the trials cheering my face off. So, so I hope I. to see you then. Absolutely. All right. All right.